the black leather jacket, a symbol of rebellion, angst, toughness, bad boys. In his book, The Black Leather Jacket, author Mick Farron chronicles the history of the black leather jacket over a 70-year span up to the mid-1980s, taking in all aspects of its social, cultural, and political impact. And in the introduction to his book, Farron explains, the black leather jacket has always been the uniform of the bad. Hitler's Gestapo, the Hells Angels, the Black Panthers, punk rockers, bar cruisers, rock and roll animals, and the hardcore mutations of the 80s all adopted it as their own. The black leather jacket has always been the uniform of the bad. And if you are a parent and a boy shows up at your front door to date your daughter and he's wearing a black leather jacket, then you need to watch out. That's an exaggerated stereotype, of course, but there really is this stigma with the black leather jacket. In fact, there was even an episode of The Twilight Zone called Black Leather Jackets that further reinforced this stigma in 1960. And the opening monologue is as follows. Three strangers arrive in a small town, three men in black leather jackets in an empty rented house. We'll call them Steve, Scott, and Fred, but their names are not important. Their mission as three men on motorcycles lead us into the Twilight Zone. And the main characters on this episode have a lot in common with Psalm 14, which is the psalm that we will be looking at today. The three men in this episode named Steve, Scott, and Fred, who wear these black leather jackets all the time, they have reached the same conclusion about humanity that Psalm 14 has reached. Now, let me explain the episode briefly, and then I'll show you the connection between the two. In the episode, three beings, three aliens from another planet, disguised as human males and wearing these black leather jackets, are a part of this advanced alien invasion force sent to the earth to infect the water supply and then to wipe out humanity. The aliens' plan is to wipe out mankind because they need more room to expand and Even though they look very human, people in the neighborhood are leery of them because these three men move into the neighborhood and they show up riding motorcycles, wearing dark sunglasses, and wearing black leather jackets. Soon after their arrival, a conversation between one of the black jacket-wearing aliens and his superior reveals the reason why this alien race wants to wipe out humanity. Steve, one of the black leather jacket-wearing aliens, says this, we've been in touch with all units. His superior through this computer screen, which is just this giant eye, sci-fi, this giant eye speaks back to Steve and says, the second wave has landed successfully and is concealed as planned. With the landing of the third wave, we will be in key positions throughout the country. Steve replies, Excellent. The I, his superior, says, the people, are they suspicious? Steve replies, not a bit. They're a stupid race, as our research told us. An inferior breed given to killing, 
hatred, making war, greed, and cruelty to one another, the universe can well do without them. Well, I'm going to be cruel today. I'm going to be cruel to you, and I'm not going to tell you how the episode ends. You can hit Netflix for that later on this afternoon and see for yourself. But what I will tell you today is what this episode has in common with Psalm 14. Both this episode of The Twilight Zone and Psalm 14 expose humanity for what it is. Sinners and rebels who are given to killing, hatred, war, greed, and cruelty. But Psalm 14 doesn't ride into town on a motorcycle wearing a black leather jacket seeking to wipe out humanity, seeking to infect our water. No, Psalm 14 rides into town on a motorcycle wearing a black leather jacket seeking to inform you that your heart is already infected with sin. Psalm 14 rides into town on a motorcycle wearing a black leather jacket with plans to expose your sin and then to point you to the solution, to the remedy to your sin problem. Psalm 14 comes to tell sinners that they can find hope and forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Psalm 14 verse seven comes to tell us that God did in fact send a savior out of Zion to restore the fortunes of his people. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 14. And while you're doing that, I just want to let you know that for the next several weeks, Pastor James will be preaching in the morning services and we'll have some guest preachers in the evening. So make sure you come back for that. But back to Psalm 14. A warning is in order here. Psalm 14 is a rebel. Psalm 14 does not play by the rules. Psalm 14 wants to do its own thing. Psalm 14 is a maverick. Psalm 14 wears a black leather jacket. Now let me explain. The Psalms have been categorized into particular literary forms depending on what is happening in each one of those Psalms. So scholars and theologians and Bible commentators have identified eight major forms of the Psalms. And there are a few minor forms as well. But the Psalms can basically be grouped along these lines. And you don't have to scramble to write these down. The notes will be online. But here are the eight major forms of the Psalms that you will encounter. First, there are lament psalms. The lament psalms are what we saw last week in Psalm 13. The lament psalms show this petition or this cry to God from the worshiper in time of trouble. It could be the individual worshiper or the nation as a whole worshiping and crying out to God. So there are lament psalms. And then there are declarative praise psalms. And the declarative praise psalms do what they say. They, they feature the individual or the nation declaring or praising God for his deliverance, how he delivered them from calamity, affliction, sickness, their enemies, death, etc. Then there are descriptive praise psalms. And the descriptive praise psalms feature a description of the person or work of God, 
the person or work of Yahweh, the sovereign Lord. And in the descriptive praise psalms, they usually begin and end with the Hebrew word hallelujah, which means praise Yah or praise Yahweh. It actually means y'all, nice Texan word, y'all praise Yahweh. That's what hallelujah means. So the descriptive praise psalms usually end and begin with those. Then there are royal or Davidic or messianic psalms. And these psalms highlight the Davidic covenant, the rule of King David, and ultimately the King David who would come, which is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Then you have pilgrim songs, and these songs were meant to encourage the people as they made pilgrimages to Zion, to Jerusalem, to worship. They would sing these as they made their way to Jerusalem. Then you have the songs of Zion, and these are praise songs that that praise Zion or Jerusalem as the city of God where God dwells. You have the Hallel Psalms. These psalms were sung at the three festivals of Israel during the new moon celebrations, during Passover, Jesus likely would have been singing these psalms, Psalm 113 to 118 on the night before his crucifixion. And lastly, you have the wisdom psalms. And these psalms give attention to the law of God, the Torah of God, and the wisdom and the blessing that comes out from his word. So that's kind of a a snapshot, a very rough snapshot of the eight basic categories of the psalms. And those notes will be online so you can I give examples of each one if you'd like to study that further. But where does Psalm 14 fit? Where does Psalm 14 fit in the list that I just described? The answer is it doesn't. It doesn't fit. It it doesn't fit in with any of those eight major forms. And that's why Psalm 14 is a rebel. It plays by its own rules. Psalm 14 is a maverick and it doesn't want you to box it in. Psalm 14 is a rebel that plays by its own rules and so you have to know that about Psalm 14 before you start dealing with it. It will not play by your rules. It will not let you categorize it into one of those eight major forms of the Psalms. It will not let you set its agenda. Psalm 14 does its own thing. Psalm 14 is a bad boy among the Psalms. It wears a black leather jacket and it refuses to let you characterize it or stick it into some neat, tidy theological category like all the other Psalms. But what Psalm 14 will do is remind you of this truth. Until you know just how bad you are, you'll never know just how good God is. Until you know just how bad you are, you'll never know just how good God is. That's what Psalm 14 does. Psalm 14 is a bad boy psalm that won't be neatly categorized, but it will let you know just how bad you are. Psalm 14 doesn't wear a suit and tie. It wears a black leather jacket. And the patch on the back of Psalm 14's black leather jacket says this, total depravity. That's Psalm 14 in a nutshell. Psalm 14 has elements of the different forms of Psalms, but it will not sit still in one category. You have to know that going into it. So you've been warned. Now let's dig into this rebel psalm. Look at verse one of Psalm 14. 
Hear the word of the Lord. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Well, right off the bat, David tells us about fools. Who are fools? Fools are people who have no regard for God. When David calls people fools, he doesn't mean that they are stupid. He doesn't mean that they are dumb. This Hebrew word, the Hebrew word nabal, means ungodly. The ungodly are fools. People who live a godless life are fools. They are fools because they aren't living rightly related to their creator. They live godless lives not knowing that, as the Westminster Shorter Catechism states, that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So these fools are not living the way that human beings were created to be, created to live, to glorify and to enjoy God. But what might shock you is that David isn't talking about pagan unbelievers in verse 1. David is talking about his fellow Israelites. The fools that David has in mind here are Israelites who know about Yahweh. They know about the sovereign Lord. They know about his law, his word, but they don't live in relationship with him. David is talking about Israelites here because the average pagan unbeliever back then would have said that there is a God. In fact, they would have said there are many gods and we worship many of them. All the cultures in the ancient Near East were very spiritual. They were not like us. We have atheists and agnostics today. You can't know God. You don't, God's not real. He's not there. These cultures were very spiritual. They worshiped all kinds of gods They believed in various gods and worshipped various gods like Baal, Asherah, Chemosh, Dagon, Molech, Ra, Marduk, Tiamat. So your average unbeliever in any culture in David's day would have said that there is a God and his name is this. There are many gods and here are each of their names. So in verse 1, David is talking about Israelites who deny Yahweh's existence. These people, these fools, know about Yahweh. They know about God. They know that he delivered Israel from the clutches of Pharaoh, but they just don't want anything to do with him. So they say in their heart that there is no God, that Yahweh is not real, that what my parents have been telling me all along is not true, that what I've heard in church is not true. Notice they say this in their heart. They don't go around telling people Yahweh's not real, Yahweh's not real. Otherwise, they would have been stoned to death. You could not go around in ancient Israel and say, there is no God, Yahweh is not God. You wouldn't have lasted long. It wouldn't have been tolerated. So instead, these fools express it. Where does David say? In their hearts. And even though they may not express it out loud with their lips, These fools seem to have forgotten that God has these special kind of ears that he not only hears, but he understands the language of the heart. And their belief system, their worldview, leads these fools to live a godless life. They say that there is no God, which means that there is no right and wrong. 
There are no morals. They get to call the shots. They call the shots about gender and marriage and sexuality and doctrine and theology and all of life. And are we not seeing this today? We have people in the church. I'm not talking about pagan unbelievers. We have people inside the church who do not want to submit to the authoritative word of God, but instead they want to call the shots about what they think in their mind. They want to define marriage a certain way. They want to define gender a certain way. They want to define sexuality a certain way. They want to define theology a certain way, and they want to do it all apart from the word of God in contrast to the word of God. And yet they will say, I'm a disciple. I'm a Christian. We have people in the church who are just like the people in verse one in David's day. They want to be called disciples. They want to be called Christians, but they deny God's word. And so David has a name for them. Do you know what it means If you think this way, if you want to be in the church and yet call the shots for your life and not submit to the word of God, but instead live by your own thoughts and your own feelings, then David says, you're a fool. If this describes you this morning, you need to listen to Mr. T. Do you remember Mr. T? He was a bad boy. He was, a, he was a tough guy, and he would say to those today who know the word of God, but they don't want to live by it, he would say, I pity the fool. I pity the fool who sits in the church and claims to be a believer, but they don't want to submit to God's word. Sadly, there are many people like this in the church today, and many of them end up leaving the church And when you think like this, trying to have one foot in the world and one foot in the church, or if you speak this way in your heart, it will always show up in the way that you live. It will always show up in what you do. It will always show up on what you post on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. That's what David is saying here. It'll always show up in your life somewhere. Look at verse one again. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. When you begin to think like this, it will inevitably show up in the way that you live. And David says that these people are corrupt. The Hebrew word has the idea to ruin something, to devastate something, to corrupt something. This word is used all through the Old Testament to describe the destruction that's caused by war. It's used as a technical military term for the slayer who would come in and wipe you out. It's used to describe marauding bands of people who ruin crops and fields. It's used to describe corrupt teaching. It's used to describe ruining an inheritance by marrying a Moabite. That was the guy in Ruth. It's used to describe wasting seed and even ruining someone's life through careless words. It was even used by Moses when he described the corruption of Israel 
when they made the golden calf in Exodus 32. So if you pile all of this darkness up, it shows you the devastation that is caused by people when they foolishly walk away from what they know about God, what they've heard about God in the church, from their parents, from their youth pastor, from their pastors, from their Sunday school teachers. This kind of darkened thinking ruins lives. Sin ruins lives. Sin will ruin your life, which is why we are fond of quoting Puritan John Owen around here who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. You have one of two options there. You're either going to kill sin by rehearsing the gospel and believing the promises of God or sin's going to be killing you. There's no neutral ground here. Death is going to happen in one way. You're either going to kill sin or sin is coming after you. That's the kind of corruption that David is talking about here. And this Hebrew word for corruption is the same word for corruption that God uses to describe the human race in Genesis chapter 6, which is why God sent the flood, because the whole earth was corrupt. It's a sinful corruption that destroys the lives of people because people choose to ignore God, to ignore his ways, to ignore his wisdom, to ignore his word, and instead they want to live for themselves. So David says they do abominable things. They do no good. And so the fools here in verse one our fellow Israelites. I know in the church we like to claim that to point to atheists and say, yep, you're full. David's talking about so-called believers inside the church. They are people who have heard all about Yahweh, but they want nothing to do with him. But when David speaks of corruption, he doesn't restrict it to Israel. He also means the entire human race too. Everyone is born this way. Everyone is born with this darkness inside of them. Everyone is born with a black heart. Everyone is born with a heart defect that says, there is no God, I make the rules. And if you don't believe me, then we need to read verses two through three, and then maybe God can convince you. Look at verses two and three. The Lord, Yahweh, looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. David now tells us that God looks down on all of humanity and he has given his diagnosis of not just Israel but the entire human race. Not only are there corrupt people in Israel, but the whole world is corrupt. The whole human race is corrupt. And verse two tells us that God's eyes prove that men's hearts are evil, that God has these eyes that can look into the heart of every human being, these special eyes that can look into the heart of every single human being, even a newborn baby, and see that their hearts are evil. David is saying God has inspected humanity himself. He has stooped down and checked it out for himself. And he has declared that all mankind is sinful. God has bent down and looked over the earth to see if there are any human beings who seek after God. 
And his diagnosis is that all have turned away from God. All have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. If we don't grasp that we are sinners, then nothing else will make sense in this world. If we don't come to grips with the fact that we are sinners, then nothing else will make sense in this world. The gospel will not make sense, God's word will not make sense, and especially the love of God will not make sense. And that's why, until you know just how bad you are, you will never know just how good God is. You'll never know just how merciful and gracious God is until you come to grips with your sinfulness. You won't understand the good news of the gospel unless you hear the voice of God's law first. That's the order. You hear God's law and then the gospel comes in and declares good news. It's law, then gospel. It's bad news, then good news. And God's law which is summed up in the Ten Commandments, has declared that every single human being is a sinner. God's law comes to expose us as the sinners that we are. And this is what Jesus was talking about when he said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who hears Jesus say that and say, I can do that. Some people try. Jesus' point is that you have to be perfect and you can't, and you're supposed to be devastated by that and crumble and say, who can be perfect? Who can love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength? Who can love their neighbor as themselves? You're supposed to be devastated when you hear that. That's the law. And then the gospel rushes in and says, Jesus obeyed for you. Jesus loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself, and he credits that righteousness to you when you believe in him by faith and trust in him. God's law must expose us first before the good news ever makes sense. This is exactly Paul's point in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, where he quotes Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, to prove that we are sinners. The theological term for this is total depravity. Total depravity doesn't mean that human beings are sinners and that we are as wicked as we possibly could be. That's not what total depravity means. Total depravity doesn't mean that we will all do things like Hitler. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that we are as wicked as we possibly could be because most of us don't do things like Hitler. Total depravity means that we are sinners and the effect of Adam's sin and the curse of sin has so pervaded our whole person. Sin has affected every area of our being, our spirit, our body, our mind, our will, etc. The whole person, the total person has been wrecked by sin. That's total depravity. And that's Psalm 14's point. Every human being is radically corrupt through and through. There is no one who does good. There is no one who seeks God unless it's by God's grace. And God in his grace, as verse seven in Psalm 14 says, he sent a savior out of Zion to restore the fortunes of his people. 
But once again, we're getting ahead of ourselves. First, we need to see what the Lord says in Psalm 14 because he asks a question about those evildoers who mess with his people. And this is why Psalm 14 doesn't play by the rules. The Lord shows up and asks a question. Look at verse four. This is the Lord speaking. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? So verse four is the Lord speaking here and the Lord is amazed that evil people aren't aware that he is aware of what they are doing to his people. Of course the Lord knows this but this is anthropological language, putting it in language that we understand that's describing the amazement that the Lord has that sinful evil people would not only live in rebellion against him but that they would actually harm his people as if God doesn't notice. The Lord is flabbergasted that evil people would eat up his people like bread, David says. That they would feast on his people the way that people feast on the endless breadsticks that are offered at Olive Garden. But don't get distracted by evildoers in verse 4 eating Israelites like zombies. They aren't doing that literally. This is poetry. They aren't literally eating Israelites the way they eat bread. So don't get stuck on that imagery. Instead, get hung up on these two words in verse four. My people. Those two words, my people, should startle you more than any wicked, evil, pagan harming or even actually feasting on an Israelite. Those two words, my people, should shock you Those two words, my people, should shock you even more than a cannibal feasting on another human being. Why? Because how has Psalm 14 described humanity so far? Wicked, evil, rebellious, darkness, blackened by sin, totally depraved through and through. And yet the Lord refers to some of these human beings as my people. What sweet words. What wonderful good news. God has a people. God has a people that he has redeemed out of this wicked population, out of this darkness. My people. What sweet, sweet words. And that's why the big idea of the Bible is what gets repeated over and over through the Bible. And it's this, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the big idea of the Bible. That's the core of the gospel. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's why David chimes back in in verses five and six. David has to speak again. He has to interrupt the Lord here because he knows that because God has a people, then God will defend his people. Look at verse five. There they are in great terror, talking about the evildoers. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord, Yahweh, is his refuge. David is basically saying that Yahweh is the kind of God that if you mess with his people, he will mess you up. If evildoers want to eat God's people up like bread, then God will come along and say to those evildoers, you're toast. 
If Yahweh gets so worked up about his people, if he's so distressed about what they endure at the hands of evil men, then that means he will make things right one day. God's enemies are the ones who are to live in terror, not us. We're just supposed to live in shock that Jesus loves and forgives sinners like us. We're not to live in fear. We are not to live in terror. We're supposed to be shocked, not by the evening news, not by the terror of the terrorists, not by what's happening in our country. We're supposed to be shocked by those two words, my People, the gospel should rattle our cages, not the evil that we see in this world. Not that we're not to be concerned about it and do something about it, but what stirs our hearts more? The evil that we see or the fact that God has redeemed sinners like us. We must remember that Yahweh will not let his people get roughed up and not intervene. So no matter what is happening today with ISIS, with the government, with culture, turning on Christians at every turn, Psalm 14 wants you to know that if you mess with God's people, you mess with God. If you mess with God's people, if you mess with God's bride, then you mess with God. Tell me, men, if somebody did something and harmed your wife, would you not intervene Would you not step up and respond? If you mess with God's people, if you mess with his bride, the church, he will mess you up. If you mess with God, you get the horns. That's from the breakfast club. If any of you remember that. It may take a while, and we may have to wait until the very end of time, but God's enemies will pay. So what do we do until God intervenes? What do we do while we wait for God to intervene? We remind ourselves of the gospel that's seeping out in verses four and five. It says, God is with us. It says, the Lord is our refuge. That's how you make it through the darkness. That's how you make it through when you fall on black days. That's how the church, the people of God, survive all the darkness that descends upon us. Psalm 14 is telling us that because men's hearts are darkened and blackened by sin, then we, his people, the church, will experience dark days. And so now what? What do we do with all of this dark theology? What do we do with all of the dark theology that's oozing out of Psalm 14? What do we do with the fact that mankind is totally depraved and wrecked by sin through and through? What do we do with the fact that God's enemies want to eat up his people? What do we do with the fact that God will destroy his enemies and make them tremble in terror? At the very least, it should change the way we pray. And that's why we have our prayers of confession and celebration in the middle of our services here at Grace. We confess our sins and then we celebrate God's grace. So we believe in Psalm 14's verdict on humanity here at Grace, so much so that it changes the way that we pray here at Grace. Psalm 14 pulls no punches. Psalm 14 is tough and not afraid to tell you the bad news. 
But Psalm 14 isn't just all bad news. There's actually a lot of grace shining through the darkness. So if Psalm 14 rode on its motorcycle and went to a tattoo parlor and took off its black leather jacket, it would get this tattoo on its forearm. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Psalm 14 has to give you the bad news before it can give you the good news. And the good news is that God gives grace to sinners like us. The good news of the gospel is that God redeems sinners. And we are redeemed. And grace is amazing because Jesus broke into our situation. Because he intervened in the life of his people. Because Jesus moved into our neighborhood. And God answered David's cry in the last verse when he sent his son Jesus. Look at verse seven. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortune of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Salvation did come from Zion. Jesus. Jesus is the salvation that has come out of Zion. Jesus is the reason why Jacob can rejoice, why Israel can be glad, why we can rejoice and be glad. So from the moment that Eve bit the fruit and the juice flowed down her face, Jesus was preparing to come and restore the fortunes of his people. From the moment that Adam ushered in the darkness of sin, Jesus was preparing to restore the fortunes of his people. And he began that good work in us. And Paul says in Philippians 1.6, he will complete that work. We are new creatures in Christ. But even though we are new creatures in Christ, we are still sinners. And there's the rub. We are simul justice et peccator. The Latin theological phrase which means simultaneously just and sinner. For those who are in union with Jesus Christ by faith, we are both justified, we're declared righteous by God, we are blameless in God's eyes, and yet we are still sinners. We sin every day, and that can be depressing, but we're still blameless in God's eyes. We sin every day, and that can be so depressing, but we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel. And that means we can rejoice and be glad, as verse 7 says. And that means that if you aren't rejoicing this morning, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ and you aren't glad this morning because your sin has you so burdened, then you don't understand grace. You need a refresher on grace, a refresher on the gospel, so that you can walk in freedom. If the following list describes you, you don't understand grace this morning. You're not free If the following list describes you, you don't understand grace and you need to rehearse the gospel again. You know you don't understand God's grace when you live with a vague sense of his disapproval. If you walk around thinking God's upset with you all the time and he's just throwing his hands in the air, it's like, they're never gonna get it. If that's the way that you think God feels about you, you do not understand grace. If you feel sheepish bringing your needs before him after you just failed him, you don't understand grace. Let's say you, you blew it big time in the sin department and now you have a legitimate need and you say, I need to ask God, but I just blew it. If you think you can't come to him in that moment, you don't understand grace. If you feel you deserve an answer to prayer because of your hard work and your sacrifice, I've been serving you all these years, God, you owe me. You don't understand grace. If you assume that 1 John 1, 9 no longer applies to you, 
First John 1 John 1.9, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you think that no longer applies to you now that you've sinned so many times that you've used up all of your credit with God, then you don't understand grace. If you feel more confident before God because you've been faithful with the Christian disciplines, prayer, witnessing, Bible study, if you think I can come into my presence because I haven't missed a quiet time since January and it's November 30th. If you think you have more confidence before God because of that, you, my friends, do not understand grace. If you can't honestly say that right now, right now, you see yourself as blameless in his eyes, then you do not understand grace. If you don't really believe he likes you, you don't understand grace. God may love me, but I just don't think he likes me. Then you don't understand grace. If you fear the day may not go as well as planned because you missed your quiet time, didn't pray this morning, didn't read the Bible, I'm gonna get in a wreck in the car, lose my job, my house is gonna burn down, get thrown in prison because I didn't have my quiet time this morning, then my friends, you don't understand grace. If you assume that you can do something to make him love you more or less, you don't understand grace. If you think God loves you more because you go on mission trips and because you reach out to your neighborhood and you read your Bible all the time, if you think God loves you more because of that, you do not understand grace. And if you think that because you don't do those things that he loves you less, then you don't understand grace. Listen, my brothers and sisters, it is finished. Jesus paid it all so we can rejoice and be glad like verse seven says. That should give you some hope this morning. Salvation has come from Zion. Jesus has come to save sinners. That should free you. And who would have thunk that? Psalm 14 told us that. A psalm that doesn't play by the rules. A psalm that won't be boxed into a neat little theological category. A psalm that likes to rebel against the status quo of psalms. That psalm can actually give you hope and encouragement and help you walk in the freedom of the gospel. A psalm that wears a black leather jacket could actually calm your heart and comfort you and help you walk in freedom. That's the gospel. And the table before us is the gospel on display. The bread and the cup would agree with Psalm 14. The bread and the cup are telling us that although we are sinners, we are still God's people. The bread and the cup are telling us that Tim, something that Tim Keller said. The gospel is this. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Until you know just how bad you are, you'll never know just how good God is. Let's pray and prepare our hearts. Father, we admit this morning, we agree with the law which exposes us as sinners and rebels. We admit that, we know our sin. Forgive us. Forgive us for not believing your word. God, forgive us for not walking in the freedom of the gospel, for not understanding grace. We've made it so much about us, and we have issues because of that. Center our thoughts once again on your son, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified as the one who came from Zion to save sinners, and then may we leave here today rejoicing and full of gladness. 
by the power of the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.